Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. As Jody, our worship pastor, said, we're going through the book of Psalms, the first ten of them this summer. Last week we studied Psalm 1 and This week, we turn to Psalm 2. So hear the word of God, which is eternally true. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. This is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. And there's been some debate, Justin Martyr thought this was part of Psalm 1, one psalm, but if you go to Acts chapter 13, 33, you read, God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. So scripture actually tells us this is the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, why is this psalm so often quoted in the New Testament? And what use does the New Testament make of this psalm? Well, let's look at several places, mostly, though, Acts chapters 3 and 4. If you remember, in Acts chapter 3, we have the story of Peter and John going up to the temple. And on their way, they run into a man that Scripture tells us was lame from birth, right? Is that what it says? Now, it says he was lame from his mother's womb. And this man was 40 years old, and he'd always been lame. So, you know, there are certain people that in this community, you know their handicap or you know their sin. Um, I won't mention them, but, you know, you get to know the people in your community. And the people in Jerusalem knew this man as the man that from his mother's womb had been lame. And so as they're going up to the temple, Peter and John do what God calls them to do. You remember the silver and gold have I? But what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus, what? Rise up and walk. And so he did. He rose up, he walked, and then he did what? He danced. Walking and leaping and praising God. Well, this was a scandal. And the scandal was that God's power had broken into the world. We were never comfortable with that. But the scandal was also that God's power had broken into the world at the point of the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And so we pick up this story in Acts 4. The man's been healed. And then we read verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. So So John and Peter had taken this opportunity to preach the gospel. And they're preaching there with this man as illustration, as exhibit one, 
a loud exhibit, walking and leaping and praising God. And so as they're preaching, this priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees come up to them. Well, this would be the pastor, the elders, it would be the president of the seminary, it would be the archbishop, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And they came up to them being greatly, what? Disturbed. (laughs) Greatly disturbed, you know? What would you like to write there? Greatly pleased, greatly excited, greatly rejoicing. Wouldn't you hope that your elders would? But no, they were greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed that the number of the men came to be about 5,000. All right? So you feel the tension building, right? They're angry that this man has been healed, and in the name of Jesus, and then opportunity has been taken to preach Jesus. So on the next day, their rulers, now notice that word ruler being inserted here. We always like to think that the church is the church, and society is society, and a civil magistrate is civil, or got the church, the church, but here we see the insertion of the word rulers. It is always a permeable membrane between civil society and church society. It's not accidental that the men who show themselves of good conscience, who keep their own order in their home, are also the men that are put in as civil magistrates, and that they're also ecclesiastical magistrates, right? Does everybody understand this? And so Brian Bailey is the state budget director, and he's an elder of this church. And this is always the way it is, so I don't want you to be able to just write off everything that goes on here as just being an ecclesiastical or a church battle. This is a battle with the rulers, both of the civil society and of the church. And the fact is, under the Roman Empire, the rulers of the church in Jerusalem had great influence, great influence over what went on in society. And so, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them, that would be Peter and John, in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Now, what is that? That's a question about authority. Remember when Jesus cleansed the temple? By what authority do you do this? That's basically the same question here. By what power, what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. Again, notice, rulers and elders. Rulers and elders of the people. If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, now you should be laughing here, showing that you're reading what you're reading. He puts them in a quandary, doesn't he? If we're on trial because we helped the sick man, <laughs> you know. <laughs> As to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Are we on trial for helping a sick man? Well, if you want to know who healed him, it was Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. And of course, that's how every pastor, every one of us today would preach the text. We just skip right over the thing that heightens the conflict. You all understand this. This is one of the most uh, powerful parts of the book of Acts. This theme is relentless in the book of Acts. They preach to people saying, you crucified him. And so if that's how they preached, and if that church grew to 5,000, it must be missional. It must be gospel-y. It must be evangelistic. It must be... It must be... Now, those of you that are new here, the reason I say it that way 
is because it just sort of dismisses the whole issue of the dignity of our pastors. You know, if I say helpful, you know, you, you know, but if I say helpful, and that's all a mother's supposed to be. It's all a dad's supposed to be. It's all a pastor's supposed to be. We're just supposed to be helpful. And so the, the apostles being filled with the Spirit are what? Helpful. And so they say, you, do you see that? Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Can we please all see here that, 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 the, that the axe has been brought down and has split? You crucified God raised from the dead. You crucified God raised from the dead. The apostles, John and Peter, are not trying to placate. They're not trying to cover over. They're not ingratiating. They're not taking a chill pill. They believe that God's Spirit works to bring men to repentance and faith precisely at the point where the wickedness of man and the holiness of God, the impotence of man, the power of God, are made most visible. And so, if they're talking to the people in Jerusalem who just killed the Messiah, they say, you just killed him. And when the apostle goes into Athens, what does he do? He says, ye men of Athens, I can see that you're a very religious people. And he immediately confronts them with the idols that are on every street corner. People, it doesn't help your neighbors and your loved ones for you to avoid the very thing that is their crowning wickedness. It's as if the church today has been convinced that we should make a great study of that precise point at which the most wicked, the, mo the greatest wickedness of our culture and our loved ones is, and then studiously avoid it. And that's called contextualization and missional. So if it's homosexuality, we study homosexuality carefully and we realize that the world is filled with different versions of homosexuality and the Apostle Paul's condemning some version of homosexuality. And you know, I think what he's condemning is unequal relationships like Denny Haster apparently had. And so that's all the Apostle Paul's condemning is just inequality. It's like pedophilia, you know, you don't want pedophilia. You want bestiality, or no, you don't want bestiality, you don't want pedophilia, but you do want you know, equal relationships of two women and two men. I mean, that's not what the apostle. Or what we say is, listen, the apostle Paul was against promiscuous homosexuality, as if there's any other kind of male homosexuality, right? Our, our elders and pastors have actually worked with male homosexuals, and guess what? Take, take sexuality away from a woman, and there is no kitchen, and there is no talking. You know how they say sex begins in the kitchen, not with two male homosexuals. And we know that because we love them and we work with them. It's Craigslist, right? Everybody knows this, right? If you didn't, I'm just telling you, all right? And so what we do is we study it and we say, well, you know, it's a relationship of unequals like Denny Hastert is a coach with somebody. And then it's just promiscuous homosexual relationships, you know? Those relationships where what you're dealing with is you're dealing with men who haven't settled down into monogamy and don't have a married relationship. And so uh, Tony Campola's wife years ago in Christianity Today said, listen, I, I believe that those that can't repent of homosexual desires and relations should really get married because being married and homosexual is better than being promiscuous and homosexual. And so... And then others of us say, well, you know, the church should be welcoming. And I mean, give me a cold one and an easy chair. <laughs> because I'm all for welcoming. And this is our evangelism today. This is your evangelism with your loved ones today. This is how you live. You find the place precisely where the entire world is in rebellion against God. You can't turn 
five degrees to the left or right without being hit in the face with the rebellion of this world against God's law concerning homosexuality. Everybody there with me, okay? You must not, you don't have your hands up. I mean, put your hands up. You all see this, right? Okay. And so we focus right there at homosexuality and we say, well, it's just condemning relationships of unequals and it's just, it's just, it's just talking about promiscuous and, and, and wouldn't you think it would be better for them to be married and, and I want to be welcoming. And this is our evangelism. You know, I've, I've told you this. I've worked with homosexually inclined and active people since we first got married. There were two of them in our small group. We loved them. They were in our house all the time. Lesbian, homosexual man. Although at that time we didn't know he was, but we sure knew she was because she was in a relationship with a woman. And listen, do you know what defines the life of homosexuals? I'll give you a clue. What do you think defines the life of an adulterer? It's the same thing. What defines the life of a homosexual is guilt. God's law witnesses within him, within her, in such a way that their life is a horror of bondage to sin that their guilt is relentless about. You listen to the testimonies of those who repent of homosexuality, and what they'll tell you again and again is that finally they got to the point where they couldn't stop lusting after a man or a woman, and so they just gave in. And you say, well, why, why were you trying to stop? And you know, if they're honest with you, in other words, if they're private, and it's not in a public bully pulpit, what they'll say to you is, well, it's because I knew it was wrong. They don't say, well, because society was oppressing me and teaching me to be guilty for something I should never have been guilty of, you know? And so look, today, the defining reality of the church as we live as Christians in this world is not the idols of Athens, right? We have idolatry, and, and it's not the slavery of civil war and of William Wilberforce, Right? And it's not the civil rights sham across our country of, of the civil rights work of the 50s and 60s and 70s. And it's not the great Trinitarian heresies of the early church. And it's not the heresies of Servetus who went across Europe and everybody in Europe, both the Roman Catholics and the Protestants, the Reformers, everybody thought he should die, Right? Today, the confessional issue in the church is what it means to be a man and a woman. That's what it is. And so here, in front of those that held the power at the time, the rulers, what they did was they took the sin that had consumed the rulers, which was hatred for God's anointed one, Jesus Christ the Messiah, and they said, you killed him. But God raised him from the dead. Now listen, if you're a ruler and you're hearing this, what do you think you're thinking? What do you think you're thinking? Now Josiah, my grandson and me, if he said that to me, both Josiah and I, I think, would be what? Livid, furious. You know, we all have temperaments, right? And for me, the emphasis is temper. <laughs> Some of you would immediately be completely slain in your conscience, right? You just, by nature, are guilty and depressive. But you realize that what really determines our response to an accusation and a division like that is the Holy Spirit. Did you notice how it said that he was filled with the Holy Spirit when he began to preach? Peter could never have preached this sermon unless he'd been filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the only way we have faith for this church in Bloomington 
is that we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Didn't he? By the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, there's the division, you crucified, God raised him from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He, speaking of Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. <laughs> Come on, read your Bible's words inside our true and reliable. What does it say? It says, he is the stone which was rejected by you. <laughs> by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now watch what develops here. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Have you been with Jesus? Have you been with Jesus? You know, if you've been with Jesus, you have boldness. You have confidence. And it's because his spirit's in you. And your enemies are not your enemies. They're enemies of God. But they'll see that you've been with Jesus. There will be a zeal and a fire to you that will be completely contrary to postmodernism. Instead of living as if your God is nice, you will live as if your God is holy, merciful, wrathful, and just. You won't emphasize one side of God's attributes that every mother loves and leave the fatherly side of him aside. And you say, well, that's not fair. You're saying women are bad and men are good. No, actually, all God's attributes, both the ones that we would more characterize as womanly and the, men's, the ones we would more characterize, they're all perfect attributes. They're called perfections. I'm not saying that women are bad and men are good. I'm just saying that we, never, we always leave out God's justice, his wrath, his holiness, his law. There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. I mean, that's a trip, right? Seeing the man, what are they going to do? You know? But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another. You can't have the people listening to, to, you know, to what you say in privacy, right? Saying, what shall we do with these men for the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem and we can't deny it. So what does that indicate? That indicates that they wish they could have denied it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people they speak of it as if it's an STD. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, now, come on, remember how I say, every piece of tension is heightened. Whether we should obey you instead of God, that is setting in opposition the rulers and God. Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we can't stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Isn't that sweet? That's kind of added as like a parenthetical statement at the very end. 
You be the judge, you know, because we can't stop, right? When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people. In other words, they could have come up with false charges, but they knew there would be a hullabaloo all across Jerusalem because the people had seen. There he is, walking and leaping and praising God. Because they, the people, were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. When they had been released, they went to their own companions. Now, that would have been the church of Jerusalem. All right, their companions. And reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they, now which way, which they, what does this they refer to? Well, it refers to their companions, not to them. Because it says, and when they heard this, so they're hearing it, they, meaning the Christians of Jerusalem, lifted their voices to God with one accord. And people, listen, 20 years we're celebrating next year. You know what is the precious thing about this church to me? The precious thing is, with one accord, you call your pastors to preach God's word. Do you know how many churches, if a pastor preaches, he will be punished? We always take it for granted in the the book of Acts, when you have boldness, unflinching proclamation of Jesus, and there are riots, and there's stonings, and there's persecution, and loss of livelihood and everything, you never see the church trying to gag their pastors, Notice it says, with one accord. They lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in him, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant. So we know that even though it doesn't have a heading, that psalm was written by David, Psalm 2, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city, so they've quoted Psalm 2, now they say, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Did the Jews oppose Jesus? Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the Goyim, and your people, that's the Jews, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Why did they oppose them? And oh man, you guys all want me to just jump over the words of Scripture. Whom you predestined. Listen, don't give me all this talk about you being more biblical than Calvinists. When the Bible says predestined, it is making the statement that there is nothing in this world that does not happen except by the sovereign decree of God. You remember that the Bible testifies about Pharaoh, that God hardened his heart. Now, you want to say, well, then there goes free will. And I say, no, no, no. Herod had complete free will. And you say, no, 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 God hardened his heart. And I say, nope, he had free will. You say, well, that can't be. Either God hardened his heart, and he didn't have free will, or he had free will, and God didn't harden his heart, or one or the other. And I say, no, 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 both and. And you say, well, it can't be. And I say, God is so much more sophisticated than you intellectually. You know, would you stop trying to save God from the words of his word? It says predestined here, and that must be helpful to you, okay? To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed... When they had prayed. You know, if you think of their prayer, it doesn't focus on them at all, does it? It just says, help us. But the whole thing is about the glory of God, about the anointing of God's son, Jesus. Everything is focused on God. Everything. 
When they prayed this way, look what happens. The place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And so here we see in in the first days of the church precisely the same thing that is spoken of in Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. We see that this is the theme of Scripture in the Old Testament when the people whose God was Moloch and demanded that its followers take their little babies and put them in the mouth of their idol and be burned to death. When they attacked Israel, they weren't attacking Israel. They were attacking Yahweh. And all those military battles of the Old Testament show how God protects his name, his glory, and the people he has put his name on. This is precisely the situation of the church today. Those of you who have the faith to suffer for the name of Jesus, those of you who actually show up at the gap in the wall, who actually speak of God's holiness and righteousness, who actually take a position against the lust that defines our culture, will be attacked, will be hated. People will accuse them of being culture warriors, which is to say Republicans, conservative. Because the world isn't going to admit that you are a slave, a servant, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. The world isn't going to admit that what you stand for is the character of God in the Ten Commandments. The world's never going to say it's against the Ten Commandments. It can't even bring itself to say it's against Romans 1. And so you'll think, oh no, I'm blowing it because people are attacking me for being a culture warrior. I say, no! You're just suffering the same way every believer has suffered since the time of Jesus Christ. You say, oh, it can't be because it's my husband who's attacking me. And he knows me. He knows all my sins. And he says that I'm just a shrew. I say, well, if you were a wicked pagan, what would you accuse your wife of to shut her up? You'd tell her she couldn't cook right and you didn't even enjoy making love to her. I mean, are you going to actually say, you're holy and I hate you? you're going to just lob grenades every place you can just to shut that woman's mouth. The world is never going to tell you that they're opposing you because you are a witness against their lust. It's going to be that you're tactless. It's going to be that you're judgmental. It's going to be that you're a culture warrior. And, and, and all those things might be true. You might be tactless. As a matter of fact, I can think of fewer words that are better for the Apostle Peter than tactless. <laughs> and you might be a little short guy with bad eyes. who's just obnoxious. He might have talked like this. And that would be the Apostle Paul. I mean, have you ever thought about what he sounded like? You know how some people just grate on you? Don't you think the Apostle Paul just grated on him? He was always right. I hope he wasn't married. (laughs) Listen, it is always true that the rulers of this earth 
hate God. It is always true that the wise of this world despise Jesus Christ. It is always true that the people of this world choose the rulers of this world that they deserve, and those rulers scratch their ears precisely where they itch. It is always true that those who stand for the character of God, which is deposited in the Ten Commandments, will be viewed as judgmental, will be viewed as intolerant, will be viewed as tactless, will be viewed as self-righteous. And so you've got to decide, what do you want? You can even have your reputation or God's. Either your reputation is the thing that matters to you or God's. And which is it going to be? If it's, if it's your reputation, my first recommendation to you is please leave this church because I want us of one accord to go to God in prayer. I don't ever want you having a pastor who does not call you to repent of your sin, your fear. I don't ever want you to be joined unequally with those who hate the character and perfections of God and his law. Right? Right? From the very beginning, hasn't that been what's united us? Isn't that what causes us to be humble with each other? Because we're all convicted. You, you were in the Sunday school class with Brian today. <laughs> Did you notice how Brian was putting himself up on a pedestal? If you were in that class. If you weren't in this class and you weren't in the other class, you're idiots. It was so helpful to me. But let me finish. They say, verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. This is their, <laughs> uh, are you ready? This is their declaration of independence. Okay. Let us what? Do you see it? Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And this rever refers to the things that kept animals in check and working for you. So you'd have you know, bonds on the ox that would keep him in the yoke, that would keep him serving you. And this is what they won't have. When I was uh, in junior high school, I went on a, 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 a pack trip out in Montana. And so we went 70 miles on a gravel road before we got to the ranch. And then we got on our horses and went way up in the mountains. And I had this horse who hated fetters and bonds. He hated them. And so one day, we're on top of a ridge in the mountains. I can see it to this day. And all of a sudden, I put a little bit too much weight on the left. And poof, I, the whole saddle and everything just falls to the ground. Well, if you've been around horses, you know why that happened. The guy that was putting the cinch on him didn't kick him in the belly first. That's what you have to do. And so a horse is... So what the horse does when you're going to put the cinch around his belly is, you know, the picture's being taken and it's like this, but when the cinch goes on, it's like that. And so the cinch, when he sucks his breath in at the moment, he wants to get rid of his rider. The cinch gets loose and he goes over like that. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And so let me ask you, what are the bonds what is the rain? What is the bridle and the bit of God? And you know what it is. It's the Ten Commandments. It's God's character deposited in the Ten Commandments. That is who He is. He cannot lie. He's always faithful to his precious bride. And so what? Do you hate God's fetters? Do you hate the cords? Do you hate the reins? Do you hate the bridle? And we all do. We all hate it. 
But we see, as, as Brian said in the class this morning, we see day by day, moment by moment, how God changes us so that as we get older and we begin to read Psalm 119, we actually do love it. We actually find in our hearts as we get older a growing love for the law of God. But it's only because God has kept us under its preaching, constantly instructing us, this is the way you walk in it. Line by line, inch by inch, And we make so many acts of rebellion against God. We think that we can look without touching, right? That's what every man thinks. I'm just going to look, but I ain't going to touch. And then all of a sudden, we touch. And then we think, oh, Jesus said, if a man looks with lust on a woman, he's committed adultery in his heart. And our wife looks at us and goes, duh. And slowly, as you get older, you begin to love the law of God. And this is what God says about his law in Hosea 11.4. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and I fed them. Gently, he leads those with young. The law of God is his love. And if you love God, you love his law because his law is his character. We don't despise the law of God. The Jews, though, he had given them the cords and bonds of love, but the Jews would have none of it, and they used their rulers to crucify his anointed one. We read in John 19, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, Jesus, but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. So they cried out. Now, I want you to notice it's the Jews and they. It is not the Jewish leaders. Do you understand? Modern translations insert the word leaders there. It's not in the original. It's the people. We always, as people, have the rulers that we deserve. Do you understand this? So the Jews have been told he's their king. It was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. And so they, the people, cried out, away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Now, what does it say next? It says this. The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. When God wants to say leader, he uses the word leader. When he wants to say the chief priest, he uses the word priest. When he wants to say the people, he says the Jews. Do you understand that? The people and their rulers were united in crucifying their Messiah. Jesus was holy. Jesus taught and lived the law of God perfectly. Jesus was God's righteous one, and neither the people of God, the Jews, nor their rulers could stand such cords and bonds of love, and so they crucified him. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And so what's the response? Verse 4, he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And man, this makes us so uncomfortable. You know, we think, well, God, why would you laugh? Why would you scoff? That certainly does not commend your character. Listen, mothers and fathers, take your children home and show them. Show them God's laughter and his scoffing. Why? Well, if you want help, then go to the foot of the cross and show them 
the religious leaders. And everybody gathered under the cross, laughing and scoffing at the Lord's anointed one. Don't lower the conflict. Don't try to make the God that you teach to your children Mr. Nice. God will be glorified whether it's through the humility and repentance and faith of those who belong to him or it's the rebellion and the wrath and the pride of those who hate him and their judgment. And both equally demonstrate the perfections of God's character. And so God thought it was helpful to us to have us told right here, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then, verse 5, he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Again, show that to your children. Saying this, but as for me, I wonder whether those of you who are mothers have ever done what my mother did constantly, being one intense woman. Because I say so, that's why. How many of you have had a father who's had the wisdom to say that to you? Now imagine that your life is defined by rebellion against God. And God laughs at you, and then he scoffs at you. And then he says what? What does he say? But as for me... Imagine God saying it like that. If God is speaking to you and God says, but, that's bad. As for me, listen people, this reduces us to a liquid. But, as for me. So he's setting himself in opposition to us with the but. As for me. Listen, so many of our children need this statement to be made to them by their father, their mother. You remember, who was it that said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Listen, when your children grow up and they rebel against God, you make sure you remember the example of Ann and Tim Wagner, who as Jonathan, their son, rejected God. They cast him out of their home, and they love him, but he does not live there, and they have never varied in their commitment to God and to his church, and he's been excommunicated. But as for me, who do you want to stand with? Do you want to stand with those that God is, is laughing at and scorning and scoffing? No, no, no. When he says, but as for me, don't you want to be in his entourage? But as for me, and this is what he says, I have installed my king upon Zion. And we say, well, no, 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 no. No, Jesus is... No, no, no. Jesus is our boyfriend. Jesus has a wonderful plan for your wife, or a life for your wife. Or Jesus has a wonderful man for your plan. Jesus is like the uncola. Things go better with Jesus. You know, Jesus is, Jesus is nice. Jesus is a personal revelation that you should allow your pastor to give to you in the privacy of your sanctuary. Jesus is, Jesus is the softness of the Old Testament God. And the Holy Spirit's even softer. And, and we're in the church age. Listen, God says what? God says... But as for me, I have installed my, what? King 
upon Zion, my holy mountain. And Zion was the mountain what? It was Jerusalem. It was the place of God's glory. It was where his people gathered to worship him. God has installed Christ for the worship of his people, right? Glorious, come on, glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken, form thee for his own abode. And that's where the king of the universe is. And remember that the mountain is holy. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the... Are you ready? I will surely give the, the, I will surely give the innermost recesses of the best intentions of the softest hearts of the women and the girls in your congregation. I will surely give, in the privacy of the church, I will surely give I will give ecstatic experiences to you when you're drinking coffee next to a frilly curtain with your Bible open. I will surely give you a minivan that doesn't blow its engine. I will surely give you a large pension fund. I will surely give you 3.5 children. Yea, if by virtue of strength, 4.5. I will surely give you everything you heard everyone. Because that's what I'm about. I just live to give you what you want. And if what you want is a private Christian faith that's alone in a sanctuary where your children can observe that you have ecstatic experiences without your hands up and without kneeling, in your devotional book, next to the frilly, clean curtain. I mean, come on. Can you imagine how wussy we all are, wimpy, how utterly cowardly we all are, that God says that he intends to give the nations to his son. And we can't even say that we believe in discrimination. We can't even stand against the physical mating of two men of the same sex, let alone the nations, we don't even want our nation to belong to God because we believe in separation of church and state. I mean, come on, come on. Have I got my number? Have I got your number? We don't believe in God giving the nations to his son. Oh, no, 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 that's after we're not left behind. (laughs) I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. In Matthew 28, if we had any question whether, we, whether Jesus preached the separation of church and state, we got an answer. Because Jesus said there to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go there and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then Jesus, right before he was raised up to heaven, he said to the disciples in Acts 1-7, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. You go to the New Testament, brothers and sisters, and you look and try to find a quivering, cowardly, wussy, wimpy statement of the authority 
Jesus Christ. In Acts 1 it says, What is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. And he raised him, this is speaking of Jesus, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And so in Colossians 1, 6, it says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. And we're all right with that, right? But what does it say then? Then it says, through him and for him. And so in Revelation, we find, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation 17, 14, these will wage war against the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings and those who are with him are the called and chosen. And faithful. This is God's answer to the world and its leaders, its rulers. This is God's answer. And now it ends this way. Now therefore, O kings, <laughs> O governors, principals, union presidents, doctors, fathers, engineers, professors, okay, pastors. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And people, this is us. We do homage to the Son. We're thankful for worship leaders who lift the volume up and make fools of us. We're thankful for readers who say, He will rage! He will rage! He will rage! He will rage! And we're like, dude, get a sense of proportion. I got it. Start getting facial tics, you know? <laughs> Would you stop using that word, please? And we just sit under God. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God to all those who believe. And so what do we have to say to our rulers in the state of Indiana? And I'll just very briefly, I'll say this. What we say to our rulers is, you claim the name of Jesus Christ. Don't you dare publicly show shame at the character of God. You belong to him. That's what we say. You remember how I've said a number of times in this sermon that we get the rulers that we deserve. The preaching that our president and our governor and our state legislators are under will form their character. And so if we have made compromise with all our neighbors and loved ones that it's just as good for them to be at this mainline church and this evangelical megachurch in our community whose message every week is something interesting and helpful for the week, what do you think the character 
of their governing is going to be. If, if we go around acting as if you are what you eat when it comes to gluten, but not when it comes to the Word of God, and we're all just so excited that a Whole Foods is going on to the east side, and Curtis, he's just surrounded by produce that's so wholesome. You know, it's a new store in town called Marlboro or... <laughs> oh, no, 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 I forgot that. Yep, yep, no. Lucky's, that's the name. Yeah. Listen, people, I tell you the truth. In the church today, women live more in fear of other women's judgment about what they feed their children than they do about the teachers and preachers who feed them the word of God. And it's appalling. The most important thing we can do for those who rule us is to call them to be under the preaching of God's word. And don't you act as if you don't know what that means and what it doesn't mean. If you want to know why we have leaders who cower in front of the onslaught of Satan today, which is exactly what we've seen in the last few months, it is precisely because they are what they eat. The preaching of God in the church today is completely dead. That's the truth. And you say, well, that's self-serving. And I say, no, no, no. I'm old enough I know I'm downhill now. I have no expectation of being hired by 10th Presbyterian. They had their chance. <laughs> I don't have any question that there are things that people in this church have to do as leaders out in secular society that are very difficult and that are nothing other than the confessing of the holiness of God and his law. But I also know from listening to one of them this last week tell the elders that what enables him to stand for the holiness of God in his work is the instruction and discipline of his church. And so it really does matter where your loved ones and where your neighbors and where your relatives go to worship God and how they're fed. Do you understand this? Yeah, we can pass laws. Yeah, we can give money to the Indiana Family Institute. We can hire, we can get Denny Haster to run for Congress. He can be the Speaker of the House of Representatives. And he went to Wheaton and it's like, Ooh, look here. He can retire without any blemish on his record. It's just like Mark Hatfield 30 years ago. Oh, my father thought Mark Hatfield was such a wonderful Christian in public service. And then it turns out that his wife was just padding their bank account through uh, real estate, you know. Listen, the hope is not and the people that rise into the positions. The hope is in the word of God, not in the preacher, in the word of God. And therefore, the people we love have to be under the true preaching of the word of God. I don't give you a plug nickel for your husband, for your children, for anybody, for the people that leave this church. If they leave the preaching of God's word and they go someplace else, they will be what they eat. Do you understand me? I'm not against passing laws. I was the first one to raise the issue when 20 years ago, David Jones at, at Covenant Seminary came out publicly in uh, Christianity Today saying that all the laws against sodomy should be repealed. Yes, the law restrains the wickedness of civil society. Yes, yes, yes. But people pray that God sends us preachers Pray that God sends us preachers. That's what wearies me to the bone, is the unfaithfulness of God's servants today. They preach peace, peace, 
There is no peace. And what will they do in the end? And you know what else it says? It says, and the people, what? Love it that way. Pray that God will raise up preachers. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword able to divide between joint and marrow. We thank you for the dear souls of the Jerusalem church who with one accord pleaded with you to vindicate your son. And we pray that we might be one accord in pleading with you to vindicate your son under the attack of all the wicked ones, governors, rulers, professors, elders of this state of Indiana and of our nation, we pray. Make Psalm 2 to reside in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.